Good morning again. Sing that song about the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. And if you are an outsider who is joining us today, that may seem very strange to you. For us to gather together and with smiles on our faces sing about how wonderful the cross is. And it is wonderful, not because it was a particularly brutal form of humiliating execution. It is wonderful because in the cross we see the justice of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the wrath of God. We also see the love of God. We see the mercy of God. We see the grace of God. We see the compassion of God in one place at one time. And it is wonderful. And those of us who have been saved by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ know how wonderful the cross is, right? And that is the message we proclaim to the world, that the cross is wonderful. In fact, the cross is the only hope that we have in this life and in the life to come. Do you have your Bibles this morning? Good. Romans chapter 1 is where you need to go. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you that Romans is an exploded view of the gospel. Remember we talked about that? Sometimes if you're, if you're looking at some kind of um, machine and you need a part for that machine, sometimes in the parts manual they will show you an exploded view where they take all the little parts uh, apart and show them each individually, but also how they are connected to work as a whole. That's the way Romans is with the gospel. All of the little parts of the gospel exploded out so that we can examine each little part and then showing how they all work together to form this amazing, powerful message that saves men and women and boys and girls. After the introduction uh, of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, we would expect him to launch right into a dissertation about the grace of God and the love of God and atonement and sacrifice and forgiveness of sins and all of those things. We would expect him to walk out into that beautiful daylight of God's grace and, and talk about those things, but he doesn't. Rather than walk into the daylight, he plunges into the depths of the darkness of human depravity and speaks with great passion about the wrath of God that is against us and our sin against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That text, first part of Romans, chapters 1 to 3, are not popular sermons on that text. They're not popular. They're not comfortable. They're not smiley and happy. They're not bright and cheery. They're often not even accepted, not embraced, outright rejected, oftentimes. But they're important. These truths about human sinfulness depravity, wrath, and judgment are important lessons for us to learn. If they weren't important, God wouldn't have spoken them to us, right? But he has spoken, and at length he has spoken in the letter to the Romans, and so we will study it closely. So let's walk into this darkness today carefully, intentionally. Let's walk into this darkness. Over the last few weeks, we've been seeing a pattern, a progression develop over and over and over again at the beginning of Romans, you see this. The first step is revelation, that God reveals himself to man, and he doesn't just reveal himself to make himself knowable. The text speaks clearly that he has made himself known, and that men have seen him and know him. It's not a problem of men not being able to grasp the truth. It's not a problem of the world not being able to see. It's a problem of the world having seen, rejecting, having understood, suppressing. Does this make sense? It is high-handed rebellion. It is not ignorant rebellion. It is not, oh, I didn't know any better. Uh, I didn't know the, oh, sorry, officer, I didn't know the speed limit was 55. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. It is knowing the truth and suppressing it that God is judging here. So first we see revelation. 
Second, we see rejection, that man has not honored and worshiped God as he should, but rather has rejected him. Then God's response to that rejection, that ultimate sin of rejecting God and worshiping the creature, right? Rejecting God and embracing a lie, rejecting God and serving an idol, God's angry over that. And that's not language that we hear very often anymore in the church. It was language that was pretty common in the church at one point in its history. But God is angry over that, and rightfully so, right? God who created everything that exists, God who sustains all of our lives, God who has sent his son to redeem us, to be rejected, he has every right to be angry, and he is angry, wrathful even over this ultimate sin of rejecting him and serving the creation. And in his anger, the text speaks clearly that he is handing us over. He is handing men over as a present manifestation of that wrath. He gives men over to the lust of their hearts into sin. And that's what we talked about last week, in particular with homosexuality. We talked about homosexuality not as the worst sin or some kind of highest level of sin or somehow unforgivable sin. The reason why Paul picks out homosexuality to talk about in Romans chapter 1 is because it is uh, illustrative of the point that he is making. It paints a picture of the exchange that he's talking about. We were created to worship and serve the creator, but rather than do that, we have done something unnatural and we have worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. In the same way, men were created to desire women. Women were created to desire men. That's natural. That's the way God created. And instead of operating in that natural form of creation, we have exchanged what is natural for what is unnatural, he says, as an illustration of the great exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And so Paul talks about homosexuality not because it's the worst sin, not because it's highest level sin or unforgivable sin, he talks about it in particular because it is an illustration of the point that he's making. And we need to be careful today to follow the logic that Paul is laying before us to say, well, let me say it this way. A lot of you came up to me last week and said, wow, Chris, way to go. I appreciate what you did. You handled that sensitive subject well. You stood for the truth. You spoke the truth to us. It wasn't popular. It might be rejected, but you stood firm and you spoke the truth. boy, way to go. We're going to take a similar stance on a whole lot of other sins today. And my guess is I will get far fewer of those kind of comments this week than I got last week. Because something this week is going to hit home for you. Last week, maybe only a few of you are struggling. And if you are struggling, I pray that you continue to struggle. If you are actively involved in that sinful lifestyle, my prayer is that God will, by his grace, deliver you from it that you will repent of sins and trust in Jesus and follow him. But maybe there's only a few of you last week that are dealing with that particular sin. This week, 21 different things Paul's going to talk about in the text. 21 different sins. One scholar said, if you can walk through this text today and not feel the pangs of your conscience, you're a psychopath. Those are his exact words. If we can read through this today, and you don't feel something, you don't see yourself in this text today, you're a psychopath. This is going to hit home. And a lot of people will come up and say to the preacher, great job, great job, when he stands firm against the sins that they commit. Very few people will come up to the preacher and say, great job, when he steps on your toes. When God's word confronts you and convicts you, very few people will thank the preacher for that. But this is God's word, right? 
He's the authority. He's the one in control, so we preach his word. And I'm not looking for thank yous today. What we're looking for today is confession, repentance, faith, following, obedience, not gratitude for the preacher. Look at the text, and let's start in verse 18. So you get this whole section. In fact, really, probably we should preach it all as one whole section, um, but the, you would... You've been frustrated with me lately because we're going late. We would go really late if we preached it all in one section. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Hang, hang on to that little phrase, they are without excuse, because this is going to keep coming up. They are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And this is the text for this week. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have told us the truth about yourself. You've told us the truth about your wrath and your judgment against sin. But we're thankful today that you have told us the truth about ourselves, that we are sinful and deserve your wrath. And God, we are ultimately thankful today that you have told us the truth about redemption, about grace, about forgiveness, about reconciliation. You've told us the truth about how you sent your son to die for sinners, to be the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners like me. Thank you that you've told us the truth about how if we repent of our sins and trust, believe in Jesus Christ, we'll be saved, forgiven, reconciled. God, I thank you that you've told us the truth pray that we will have ears to hear it today, hearts to believe it today, lives that respond to it today. God, have your way among us in this place and be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So look at verse 28. I'm going to walk through this pretty carefully, the first uh, verse or two, and then we'll see this list kind of all as a whole. And then verse 32 is a killer. Verse 32 is absolutely killer. It is heavy and dark. But verse 28 starts with the word and, and that's significant because it shows that this is a continuing thought. This is not one thought removed from the rest of the thought. I've told you before that the book of Romans is a logical masterpiece. It is a masterpiece of argumentation. Uh, It is knit together very closely with logic, and we need to see that. Paul isn't just taking random exhortations. He's not just grasping this truth and then dropping it to walk over to another truth. No, he's building. He's building a very intricate argument here, and so he says, and. So this is fitting with what we talked about last week. And then he says, just. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God. And this is an important point because there is justice in this wrath that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. In fact, I believe that one little word sums up the sentiment of verse 27 when he says, In the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. What is the error? of those men who with men are committing indecent acts? Is their error merely burning with passion for one another? No, that's not the error. It's not the foremost fundamental error. The foremost and fundamental error that they have made is they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever, right? That is the error. And it seems in this text that the penalty is this sin that they have been given over into. And so what he's saying is that the The wrath of God in the giving men over to their sin fits the crime. It's not arbitrary. It's not unreasonable. It is just. It is fitting. You want to exchange the truth of God for a lie? Then he'll hand you over into the lie. You want to serve God? You want to serve the creature rather than creator? He'll hand you over into that. And it fits. This is what's going on here. God is not some hair trigger, arbitrary, mean guy in the sky. He's just. So the text says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Catch what's going on here? He says that in their minds, in their minds, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God anymore. In their minds, they said, we're not going to consider him anymore. We're not going to think about him anymore. We're not going to acknowledge him anymore. And so he says, if that's what you're going to do with your mind, I'll give your mind over to depravity. I'll give your mind over to depravity, and then all of a sudden you'll lose your compass, your reasonable compass, and you'll get involved in all manner of sin. Catch what's going on here? There's actually a really interesting play on words in the Greek that does not translate at all into English, where he says, you disapprove of God, and so he hands you over to a disapproved mind. It's neat when things like that come up in the text, and I wish we could translate all of those things into English, but we just can't. You're going to have to trust me on this. There's a really clever play on words in the Greek text here um, that, that really makes this message pretty powerful, where he says, you did not see fit any longer to acknowledge God. So God handed you over to a depraved mind. Scary, scary thing that he's talking about here. It's a scary thing that he's talking about when he talks about the mind. That they knew God, but they rejected him. So he handed them over to a depraved mind. That depraved mind can't be trusted as a guide for life. So the mind of a worldly person, the mind of a carnal, natural person, can't be trusted to make decisions. Can't be trusted to make decisions about morality can't be trusted to make decisions about theology, can't be trusted to make any kind of decisions because it's been given over to depravity. Look what he says also in this text. He says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. 
I want to stop there and make this point that I've made several times as we've studied Ephesians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. There are certain things that are proper, and there are certain things that are not proper ever. And it is not legalism to say there are things that should not be done. It is not legalism to call sin, sin, and to demand repentance from sin. That is not legalism. There are things that are proper, and there are things that are not proper. There are things that are evil, and there are things that are righteous. There are behaviors that are unacceptable, and there are behaviors that are acceptable. Are you with me on this? And Paul says, because they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God handed them over to a depraved mind to do that which is not proper. And then he launches into this list. Want to know what it is that's not proper? Here it is. Look at verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's quite a list, isn't it? Any of those hit home to you? If not, if not, you're a psychopath. Disobedient to parents, does that get you? That's got all of us, doesn't it? At one point or another, that's got all of us. There's some scholars that say we should try to categorize this list, try to see some neat, nice divisions in this list. They will say the first three things are kind of general headings, then other parts deal with relationships with other people, other parts deal with relationship with God. I'll tell you this, I don't think you can categorize this list. I don't think that's Paul's point. I think Paul's point is to is to scatter scoop here. To just list as many different things as he can come up with at the time to say that what has happened when we do not acknowledge God, what happened what has happened when we refuse to worship God as he deserves, when we reject him and embrace the lie, we will be given over into all kinds of sin. All kinds of sin. The point here is not to be particular about the things he's talking about, but to see all manner of sin. Last week, if all he said last week was homosexuality, we could say, hey, yeah, that's not the thing I deal with, so good thing, I'm good to go. And he won't let us do that. Takes the legs out from under all of us when he says, this is what happens. This is what happens when you reject God. You're given over to all kinds of sin, all kinds of things that are improper. This also speaks to our understanding of different levels of sin. We tend, to, we tend to prioritize sin. And certainly there are some sins that have a greater impact than others, right? Yeah, we recognize that in our, in our everyday life. If you kill someone, you're going to be in more trouble than if you just tell a lie, right? But how much does it take to disqualify us from fellowship with God? Does it take murder? No. One transgression is enough to damn us to hell forever, right? And what's more than that? That one transgression or the multitude of transgressions isn't just a matter of our body or our mind. It's a matter of our heart. People sin. People do sin because they are sinners. Does that make sense? We are not sinners because we do sin. We do sin because we are sinners. So we're going to argue at the end of the day today that the problem that the world faces is not a problem of bodies or minds, it's a problem of hearts. And if that's the main problem, then the solution has to be not a solution of bodies and minds, but a solution of hearts, a change from the inside out. And we know that that comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So are there levels of sin? I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. Notice, as we read through this, he puts envy and murder next to each other. You put those in the same category in your mind? Envy and murder? 
not exactly, but God puts them in the same list together. I also think it's chilling when he talks about inventors of evil. If you think that what he's trying to do here is to name off particular sins that are particularly bad, he throws in this one that is the general summary of all of it, right? He says, oh, by the way, if, you're not, if your sin isn't on this list, I got you because you're inventors of evil. You'll make up new ways to be evil. And is that the society that we live in? Absolutely right. In fact, that's what breaks my heart when I read this text. But this is us. This is our world. This is the culture that we live in. The culture we live in is marked by these things, is it not? Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, hating God. Is this not everywhere you look in our culture? Well, why is that? Why is it this way? Is it because we've got, we've got a problem with our behavior? No, we've got a problem with our behavior because we've got a problem with our hearts. The world has a problem with its morality because it has a problem with rejecting God. Because they have rejected God, been handed over into all kinds of sin. So zoom out a little bit from this. Get a high altitude view of it. And remember the pattern that we talked about. Revelation, God has made himself known. Rejection, man has not honored God and worshipped him. Anger, God is angry and wrathful over this sin. So he hands us over. As a present manifestation of the wrath of God, he gives men over in the lust of their hearts to sin. And this is everywhere we look. This is everywhere we look. And it only gets worse. Look at verse 32. He says, and although they know the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice it. This is absolutely huge. Verse 32 is a great way to end chapter 1. First, that verse reiterates that the rebellion of the world is high-handed rebellion. Although they know. Men know right from wrong, right? Nearly every culture on the planet has developed a basic system of right and wrong, and nearly all of them agree on that. Why is that? Why do men instinctively know right from wrong? Well, it's because of God, right? Because we're created in the image of God and God has wired these certain things into us. We'll look at that later on in Romans chapter 2. How those who are without the law obey the law because God has written it in their heart. God has given us a conscience. Men know right from wrong. Men also know that sin deserves death. It says this in the text. He says, although they know that the, or the ordinance of God and that those who practice such things are worthy of death. He says people know. People know that the wages of sin is death. But do they embrace that truth? Well, they embrace that truth if you're talking about someone else, right? If you're talking about the wages of sin being death about someone else's sin, that so-and-so has done all these terrible things and deserves hell, people are glad to say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's bad news. He doesn't deserve to go to heaven. But when you start talking to them about themselves, very few people will say, yeah, the wages of sin is death and I deserve death. In fact, I believe only those, only those whose hearts are being changed by God will say that will say, I'm a sinner, and my sin deserves death. God will be just and right to condemn me to death, send me to hell. That would be frightening. Men know this, but rather than embracing this truth, they have suppressed it. Just like we're reading about in verses 18 to 23, men know, but they have suppressed. And so this verse reiterates that the rebellion is high-handed. 
They are not ignorant. Secondly, this text seems to assert that it is a major problem, not just when people sin, but when they endorse and encourage others to sin. Look what he says. He says that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, which is a problem, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. He says it's not just about what you are doing. It's about your position on sin generally in the world. And Paul knows exactly what he's talking about here. He's been in this position. Paul had committed great sin, had he not? What are some of the sins that Paul had committed in his life? Yeah, he persecutes the church, perhaps is involved in murdering Christians. Paul has sinned and sinned and sinned, but Paul has also endorsed sin, has he not? In fact, the very first time we meet Paul in Scripture, what's he doing? He's holding the coats of some men who are stoning Stephen to death, right? He's standing by while these men put to death Stephen. Why do they put to death Stephen? Did Stephen rob a bank? Did Stephen murder his neighbor? Did Stephen steal something? No, Stephen preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they stoned him to death because of it. And the first time we meet Paul, he's standing by holding their coats. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Paul gave hearty approval. Hearty approval. It's the very same language that's used right here. He heartily endorsed this kind of thing. And so what does that make him? Guilty. Culpable. Does it not? Paul says in this text, it is bad to be committing these sins. But it is also bad to be endorsing and giving hearty approval to those who commit such sins. Our culture is spiraling down this direction. The church is in danger of spiraling down this direction, of normalizing sin, glamorizing sin, celebrating sin, and encouraging sin. This is happening all over our culture, is it not? Turn on the TV and what do you see? Turn on the TV and what do you see? Do you see wholesomeness? Do you see godliness? Do you see goodness and virtue? What do you see? You see scandal and you see sin and it is glamorized and it is idolized. It is normalized, right? It is this pattern that we've got going on here. One scholar said, even the best societies have had those within them who are blatantly wicked and perverse. But a society that openly condones and defends such evils as sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, and the rest has reached the deepest level of corruption. Catch that? Every society has had those outliers who were involved in some kind of sin. Every society has had those people who were evil. He says, what about a society that endorses it? What about a society that wholesale legalizes it and encourages all kinds of evil? He says, they have sunk to the deepest level of depravity. Another scholar says it this way. If we can entice others to join us in our sin, we can get rid of the taboos rather than repent of our guilt. We seek to establish a new ethic. Welcome. Welcome to the new ethic. Welcome to America. Seeking to establish a new ethic. What is is wrong, because God has said is wrong, and has always been wrong, is now being embraced as right, alternative, proper. We have sought to establish a new ethic. Why? Because we'd rather bring other people in and make ourselves feel better about what we're doing rather than repent of our sin and turn to Jesus Christ. Right? Misery loves company. And and we're guilty of this, are we not? We do this. We were talking about this this morning in prayer time. That we like it when other people come along into our sin because then we don't feel so bad about our sin. Hey, everybody's doing it. Yeah, everybody's doing it. 
and everybody's wrong. That's the whole point of Romans chapters 1 through 3. Everybody's doing it, everybody stands condemned, and we desperately need a Savior. You're not alone. You're not alone in your sin. Everybody is there. And only Jesus can change it. So this is our culture. This is our life. We're spiraling down this direction. And we, in the church, in the church, as covenant family of God, we need to be careful. We need to be careful about this last bit. Not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice sin. We need to be careful with what we watch, what we endorse, what we laugh at what we normalize and glamorize, there is a tendency in the church to say, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to be a part of that sinful lifestyle. I'm not going to be a part of that kind of depravity. But hey, if it's your thing, go for it. In fact, I'll have your back and I'll fight for your rights to do those things. That's a real problem that a lot of denominations are taking. The stance that a lot of denominations are taking about all manner of sin is exactly that stance. We're not going to go there with you, but we're going to fight for your right. We're going to stand with you and fight for your right to live however you want to live. Paul says, that's bad news. And that is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we need to be careful. As a family here at First Baptist, we need to be careful about what we watch about what we laugh at, about what we listen to. One scholar said it this way. He said, Satan knows that if he can get us to laugh at things we believe we would never do, our defenses will fail. Maybe somewhat, someday our unwitting approval will give way to action. We need to be careful what we watch and what we applaud. That's a good word. We need to be careful that we don't stand over here and say, I would never go there, but it's funny when people do. I would never do that, but it's hilarious when people do. Because one day, our unwitting approval might give way to action. The thing that we've always laughed at, the thing we've always secretly thought was kind of cool and desirable, maybe one day our unwitting approval will give way to action, and we'll be right in the midst of the mess as well. Be careful. We'll sing a song about that as little kids, wouldn't we? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little ears, what you hear careful. And the last thing I'll say about verse 32 is that one scholar said the depth and full weight of human sin is communicated in verse 32. The depth and full weight of human sin is communicated in verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I have been in that deep water, and I have felt that weight. And in the midst of that mess, the question is, who will set me free? Who will set me free from this sin? Who will set me free from this depravity? What's the answer to that question? Jesus. Only Jesus. You see, there's a redemptive purpose in all of this, I believe. All of this that we've been reading about, about God revealing himself and men rejecting him and God being angry and God handing people over into sin and men spiraling down deeper and deeper into sin. I believe there is some redemptive purpose in that because he takes us down, he takes us down, he shows us our sin, he breaks us over that sin for what purpose? To leave us there? Why does he break us like this? To show us we need him, right? To show us that we absolutely need him. This life is a mess. This world is an absolute mess. I need someone who will deliver me from this world. And the only one who can do that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve the wrath of God because of my sin. And the only escape from the wrath of God is the grace of God. 
And the only access we have to the grace of God is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's redemptive purpose in all of this text. There is hope even in all of this text. As dark and as gloomy as it is, it shows us that we need a deliverer, and that deliverer is Jesus Christ. Three applications today, and then we're done. Number one, the problem, the problem with a capital P is not with our bodies, it's not with our minds, it's with our hearts. The problem is with our hearts. Our hearts lead the way. Our hearts lead our minds. Our hearts are dark, and therefore our minds will justify what our hearts want. Our hearts are dark, and therefore our bodies do certain things. Our hearts are dark. The problem is with our hearts. And if the problem is with our hearts, the solution is not with our bodies or our minds. The solution is with our hearts, right? Does the gospel promise a change from the outside in? What if the gospel message was, listen, come to church, clean up your act, wash your clothes, live the right way, and the more you live the right way, the closer you will draw to God. And maybe one day, maybe one day you'll get so clean, starting on the outside, that the inside will get clean. What if the gospel was that? Oh, go home. Go home and cry till you die because you're not going to clean yourself up from the outside in. You can't, the Bible says, but maybe what translates better is you won't. You won't do that. You love sin too much. You enjoy these evil things too much. You won't and you can't clean yourself up from the outside in. But what if the gospel was God will supernaturally clean you on the inside by his grace. He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you a new life. He'll make you a whole new creature so that the old things are gone and the new things have come. What if the gospel was that God will change you on the inside and then for the rest of your life the outside will be conformed to the inside. That he'll make you clean in your conscience. He'll make you clean in your heart and set you on this path where the outside starts to look more and more every day like the inside. There's hope in that, right? There is peace in that. There is confidence in that. And that is the gospel. God is not telling us to clean ourselves up. God is telling us he will. He will change us. He will redeem us. And set us on a path where the outside begins to look more and more like the inside all the time. I'm thankful to God that Romans doesn't just instruct us about the problem it teaches us about the solution all of this mess should drive us to the cross all of this mess is part of the redemptive purpose of god to show us our need for jesus so what do we do what do we do we preach the gospel rather than seek mere moral reformation in our culture we preach the gospel we don't attack we've talked about this a lot we don't attack the social ills directly we attack them at their root. The reason why evil runs rampant in America is not, is not because of just our minds or our bodies. It's because of the hearts of people. Why is homosexuality normalized? Why is adultery glamorized? Because people have dark hearts. And so do we attack, do we attack abortion directly? Well, we should. And, in, in, in ways that we can, do we attack homosexuality directly? Well, we should in ways that we can. Do we attack uh, uh, adultery directly? Well, we should in ways that we can. But the best way to attack it all is to take the gospel to the heart of it, right? To take the gospel to the heart of America or any other place on the planet and let the gospel take root and then see these other problems fall by the wayside. And I'm telling you, if you read church history, you will see this happens all over the place. 
when awakenings happen, when awakenings happen in communities and people are drawn to God and their hearts are changed, man, the family comes back together. The culture is cleaned up. It's an incredible thing. Why? Because the hearts are right. So what do we do? We preach the gospel rather than seek mere moral reformation in our culture. And we pray for revival within the church and awakenings within the community. I don't like the direction we are heading as a culture. Do you? What do we do about it? We fight the culture or do we preach the gospel? Or preach the gospel and ask God to change the world? He will. He does. He has. Let's stand together and pray. God, again, we come before you and we're thankful that you've taught us the truth about the darkness of our own hearts, the darkness of the world's heart. You've showed us that you are righteous, just, holy God who must punish sin. The righteous, holy God who has revealed himself to man. You've taught us clearly who we are. Unrighteous, unholy, ungodly man who, although we know, we reject Although we understand, we suppress. We deserve your wrath. The world, the world deserves your wrath. You would be just to condemn everyone to hell. God, you are also gracious and loving and kind. And you've provided a way. You've provided an escape provided a redeemer and rescuer. You've shown grace when you fell. We know that the only escape from your wrath is your grace. And we know that the only access we have to your grace is faith in Jesus Christ and his cleanse me from the inside out. I pray that you do that for others in this place today. I pray that you remind us as we take the gospel to the world, the gospel cleanses from the inside out, not from the outside in. Help us as your people to preach the heart, not just the lies, but the heart. We pray this, Lord, in your name. We pray for revival within the church to reawaken us the glories of salvation, to the wonder of your grace. Open our eyes to see new. Let us taste fresh the gospel that has saved us. And we pray for awakening in our community. God, open eyes, open hearts, open ears to hear the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In his name we pray.